Well, good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you to Prairie Hill as well. My name is Matt. I'm the lead pastor. I want to let you know that your presence here this morning is very meaningful. It's meaningful to the people who are sitting around you. Um, Most importantly, it's meaningful to the God who made you and the God who made everything that you would come out um, early on a weekend day in order to have an encounter with this living God through worship. And so my hope for you is that um, your presence here is very meaningful to you today and a blessing to you. I want to invite you to find Luke chapter 17 if you have a Bible with you. And if you don't have a Bible with you, the the words that we're going to look at will be up on the screen here in just a moment. So you won't be left out of anything if if you don't have that available in um, hard copy or on your phone. Luke 17 is, is where we'll be. Um, if you're just joining us for the first time, the, the theme that we have been trying to keep in mind as we go through the Gospel of Luke is the kingdom of God. And what you need to know is that if you are a Christian, you have been called to live in and to represent to others the kingdom of God. Now, nothing is as likely to cause blank stares as someone mentioning the kingdom of God. I see it all over your faces. We need to be reminded every time we come to it again, like, what is this thing that we're talking about anyway? The, the, the reason that it's like that is that we kind of glaze over when someone says the kingdom of God is because the kingdom of God is unlike anything that we have ever seen or experienced. It has no parallel in all of existence or in the world. And when we mention it, when, when I say or someone says to you, the kingdom of God, far from like clarifying anything, it just kind of muddies the waters. And we have to take time to remember, like, what are we talking about anyway? What, what does that mean? Like, where is it? What is it? And what, is it, what does it require of me? What do I do about it? And yet Jesus has been talking about it all the way through the Gospel of Luke. We started in chapter 1 of Luke about 18 months ago. We're in chapter 17 now. And all the way through, we've been seeing Jesus say, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God. He keeps talking about it. So one conclusion we can draw is that the kingdom of God is really important to Jesus. And so it should be really important to us as well. So we're going to try to make some progress today in our understanding of the kingdom. We're going to be helped by the passage that we're in because the people he's interacting with, they're seeking clarification. They don't really know what it is. And so they're asking questions on our behalf almost to try to pull out more details about what is this kingdom of God that you've been talking about all the way through? And Jesus is going to give them some answers. Hopefully that will bring better clarity to us as well as we try to take steps closer to Jesus in vital discipleship, in real relationship. Okay, so let's read the passage. Um, if you're able to stand this morning, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of the word um, in honor of God and his word. Luke 17, beginning in verse 20. And we'll read all the way through to the end of the chapter, okay? This is what we find. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, 
The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Jesus is talking about himself there. You will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray. Father, sometimes it startles us to see Jesus on display before our eyes. We've been told in your word that Jesus is the one full of grace and truth. And we love the grace part. We, we drink that in. We can't get enough of it. We, we, have, we have that present before our eyes all the time when we, when we see and when we look at Jesus and when we hear his words. But there's this other element where he is also always full truth. And the things that he says are really hard. They're hard to understand and a lot of times they're hard to swallow. And it's, a, it's an, both an uncomfortable and a glorious thing to look at Jesus Christ and to accept the grace along with the truth and to fully affirm both and say, this is, this is good. And this is what it means to have him as our Lord is that we we accept and we relish the parts that we love and we accept and we relish the parts that we're not sure about because we know we have limited understanding and he is the one who is full of truth as well as grace. And so I pray 
for myself and on behalf of these others who are gathered here that you would help us in our weak understanding and help us in our weak resolve uh, this morning. Um, out of bed, up early on a Sunday during the summer, singing your praise and just please send us home with, with something that will feed our souls. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, please be seated. As you saw um, and as you heard, the passage that we just read is pretty lengthy. It's also a little bit hard to understand. It, um, it looks backwards to things that have already happened, like what we would call Old Testament events, um, the days of Noah, the days of Lot, right? It looks backwards. The passage also looks forward to events that have not taken place yet. Things that will be on that day when Jesus returns. So all of this creates a lot of difficulty for us. We've got some work to do, so we'll just move through it. And we'll try to do it in three pretty simple steps. The first thing, we'll just start at the very beginning, verses 20 and 21. Just at the very beginning, the, the simple thing that we want to start with is this realization that um, the kingdom of God, in a sense, has come. Right? That's what we're trying to learn about, the kingdom of God talked about how that can create blank stares and a little bit of murkiness, and so Jesus is teaching us about it, and the very first thing is that we've got to understand, in a sense, the kingdom of God has come, is here. And that was true when Jesus was talking with the Pharisees, right, this Luke 17 account. It was true then, it's also true now. The kingdom of God has arrived. So think about these people questioning him, the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders of Israel. They're they're opponents of Jesus at this point. They see him as a rival. He's a danger to their authority. They view him as a false teacher. They've been with him. They've heard his teaching. They know he's been teaching about the kingdom of God. They don't really understand what he's talking about. So they ask him this question, verse 20, well, when is it coming? Think about what their paradigm is for understanding kingdoms. Like, think about what they would have had in mind when they thought kingdom. What's their experience been? Well, the history of their country, that's their paradigm, right? A kingdom looks like a king, like in all of his glory with a lot of wealth, like collecting things from the people. There's a people to rule over. Enemies have been subdued. Like, there's land that we own. There's an army to protect the land, There's the absence of Gentile people or absence of people who are outsiders. Like, the outsiders aren't telling them what to do. They're sovereign within their own land, right? That's what a kingdom means to them. That's what they've seen. So their problem, as they're talking with Jesus, is that none of those things are happening in their present context with Jesus. Like, the Romans are there, like, ruling over them in their own land, Jesus keeps announcing the kingdom of God has come, but there's no physical signs that would suggest that that's true. Therefore, the question of verse 20, well, when is this kingdom of God coming? And Jesus' answer is very simple. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, 
right? So all of those physical things we were talking about, like the land, the king, the armies, the absence of outsiders, all those physical things that you could observe, Jesus says, no. Those are not the indicators of whether or not the kingdom of God has come. In in verse 21, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What does, he, what does he mean by that? One thing it means is that the kingdom of God was there when Jesus was speaking. Back then, the kingdom was present with them. It was in their midst. In what form was it in their midst? Well, in the person of Jesus himself. As in, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you means the kingdom of God is present in your midst, in your midst, in me. Our simple working definition of the kingdom of God all the way through has been the realm in which God is reigning. That makes sense. The kingdom of God, the realm in which God is reigning like as king. Well, where is that in this context? Well, it's in Jesus. God is reigning in his person. That was true when he spoke. He was the realm in which God was reigning. God was reigning in his person. God was absolutely honored and obeyed in Jesus Christ. So the kingdom was present in the realm of Jesus. He definitely means that when he says the kingdom of God is in your midst. He definitely means the kingdom of God is present in me. Now, he also might mean me and my disciples, those who had committed their lives to Jesus. He might mean that also. So we have a a certain meaning, and then we have an expanded meaning that he might also mean. Like, hey, there are no observable signs that you can see of this kingdom, but it's in the midst of you, in the person of myself, and those who are my followers. Like, as people were doing life in Jerusalem, moving about daily life, Jesus and his followers were in their midst, like influencing people for the kingdom, proclaiming the kingdom, picturing the kingdom through works of compassion and love. So the kingdom was moving among them, growing among them as people were putting their faith in Jesus. So no wonder the Pharisees don't recognize that the kingdom has come. It's unlike anything they've ever seen before. I haven't seen anything like this, like a grassroots organic kingdom that kind of grows up from the bottom. So all we want to recognize here in this first point is that this same dynamic is still true. Like we are the present manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth. The individual believer, the church, we are the realm in which God is reigning. There's no outward kingdom to Observe, it's us. We are the ones who say to God, Thy will be done. We proclaim the kingdom with our words and we picture it with our actions. So when someone asks you, The kingdom of God, what is that? The answer is that the kingdom of God, very simply, is the realm in which God is reigning. It was present on earth in Jesus Christ. 
and it currently is present on earth in his disciples. That's our first stake that we'll put into the ground trying to get a handle on the kingdom of God. In a sense, it's already here, okay? Here's where it gets murky, though. This is the second thing. In a sense, it's not here yet. Like, it's not here in its fullness yet. It's not on earth in its fullness. That's what we learn next in this passage as we move to verses 22 to 25. The kingdom of God is not yet here in its fullness. There will be like a greater, obvious, universal manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth. That's one of the points he makes to his disciples in verse 24. As lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. That's the future day when Jesus returns to earth. That's what he's talking about, the Son of Man in his day. Jesus' physical return to earth. Right, that's going to happen. That's when we'll see the kingdom come in all of its fullness. Until then, right? So we're in between these two events, right? Jesus speaking, Luke 17, 2,000 years ago, kingdom is present, me and my disciples, right? That's still true, and we're still waiting for the fulfillment of what he's talking about here, his physical return. We're in between. And as we're in between, we face these two realities as his disciples. First of all, we experience a longing for the kingdom to come. That's what he means in verse 22. The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, we have this inner longing to see the world living in submission to God in peace, in righteousness. Everybody knows this. Like you ask Miss America, you know, at the, the pageant, like what do you want to see? What's your wish for the world? Everyone, well, I want peace on earth. That's what everybody wants to see. That's gonna happen. We're not the only ones who long for this peace. We're the ones who know that it will only come when Jesus returns, but we all long to see a world of peace and righteousness and people living under the rule of the Father. So we experience a longing, and that's a, a good longing. So we experience that, and then secondly, in the midst of that longing, there will be a temptation to settle for or pursue false forms of the kingdom. That's verse 23. Because our longing is great to see the kingdom of God on earth and see everyone submitted and living under God's rule, to see God worshiped, we will be tempted to follow other people who make those promises other people who long to gather us under their rule and force the kingdom to come. The language of verse 23 is a little bit difficult and the the reference is hard to say with exactitude, like what is he talking about? Verse 23, and they will say to you, look there or look here, do not go out or follow them. What, What is he talking about? It's a little bit hard to say, like, who he means by that, but there are some guidelines that we can live within. 
based on what we find in this passage, what, what is presented to us here, looking at the passage as a whole, is that Jesus is the judge. He, he is the judge who will destroy the wicked when he returns. Vengeance belongs to God, and God will do justly, and he will sort things out, and he will separate people from each other. Who belongs to him and who does not? Judgment is coming. Righteousness is coming. It will happen when Jesus himself returns, and that event will be obvious. So in light of that, because Jesus is the one who will judge and God is the one who will separate, in light of that, follow no lesser leader, no other leader who claims to represent Jesus' interests on earth and takes for his or herself the prerogative to judge and destroy the enemies of God in the name of setting up a kingdom of God. Those people are wrong and they're dangerous. Jesus says, do not go out or follow them. We have been warned. See, all of this longing that we have in ourselves to say, I want to see Jesus worship, I want to see God bow to in my context, makes us liable to follow anyone who says, I'll do that for you. I'll take all of these enemies all of these people who don't love God and I'll do away with them. I'll get rid of them and then we'll create a pure area where God can be worshiped and takes on themselves the prerogative of judging and exterminating. Jesus says, no. Don't follow them. Even if and especially if they claim to represent the interest of Jesus' disciples. They will appeal to our desires to see the kingdom come and try to get us to want to force the kingdom to come. And we might want it for really good reasons. Jesus has said, no, we must not seek to force the kingdom on earth by sorting people out, taking people out. Don't let your longing lead you to follow a deceptive leader. How do we know who to follow and who not to follow? There's a lot of people out there that claim to speak for God. Which voices should we listen to? Which one should we avoid? Here's a very, very simple answer. It's not the only answer, but I think it's a true answer. If the voice is telling you, wait and pray, listen to that voice. Wait for the kingdom and pray for the kingdom. Listen to that person. If they're telling you, fight for the kingdom and take the kingdom, run as fast as you can in the other direction. That's not the voice of Jesus. What's the voice of Jesus? Go wait, go stay in Jerusalem. Go wait and pray for the Holy Spirit to come. It's always, the voice of Jesus is always, wait, depend, pray. And when we get out our sword, like in the garden, and start chopping people's ears off, his voice is always, put that away. It's not the way that we're going. Jesus alone, the Son of Man, will set up his kingdom. So we wait, we pray, we proclaim, we picture. 
That's the second thing. Kingdom is already here in a sense. In another sense, kingdom's not here yet in its fullness. Now, after that, the third point, and we've saved the hardest part of the passage and given it the least amount of time. We've only got a few minutes left to talk about the longest part and the hardest part. It's pretty good planning, isn't it? Instruction for the interim. So what do we do in the meantime? Like, what should we know? Since we're in between these two realities, well, what do we do? What do we need to know? There's a lot in this section, uh, this end section, about uh, judgment and separation of people, one from the other. We know that it's going to come upon us suddenly. Right? We'll be eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, doing business, selling goods, right? All that stuff's happening. It's happening out there. I'm taking part in it. You're taking part in it. We just have this, this, it's so hard to believe that God will interrupt our dailiness. Isn't that amazing? Like, how could that possibly be that what Jesus is talking about here will happen? God will interrupt our, our dailiness. Like, that's all we know. And it's so hard to believe that there will be a divine intervention in the midst of our dailiness. We can hardly comprehend it, but that's what happened in Noah's day. We've already seen it. That's what happened in Lot's day in Sodom and Gomorrah. They were going about their business, and God intervened. They could not have imagined it. So with us, we, we can't imagine it, but it will happen. Our dailiness will be interrupted by cataclysmic divine action. Judgment will be present for some and salvation for others. On that day, there will be both judgment and salvation when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. So a lot of what Jesus gives here in the last section is instruction or information, like he's saying this will happen and this will happen and this will happen. A lot of it's informational. He tells us what will happen to us. He tells us what will happen to him. The Son of Man will be rejected by this generation There's a lot of information here, but in the midst of all the information, like he gives us one thing to reflect on. So that's where we're going to go. I'll let you take the information part and I'll let you find resources that you trust to go learn more about the information of the timeline if you want to learn about that. We're going to go to the point of reflection that he gives us. He gives us something to turn over in our souls and make a point of Reflection, Luke 17, 32. There are only two times in the whole New Testament where Jesus tells his disciples, remember this. Only twice. John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you. That's one time. John 15, 20. And the second occasion is this one. Remember Lot's wife. There are a few other instances where Jesus says, like, do this in remembrance. Like, you know, last supper meal, do this in remembrance. I'm saying only twice where he tells his disciples to remember or recall something specific. 
And this is one of them. So I want to wrap up today by doing two things with you. First of all, just remembering who Lot's wife was. Just Sunday school information on who is this person. And then secondly, figure out why are we supposed to think about her? Who was she? Isn't it interesting that the only Old Testament person Jesus tells us to remember is this obscure person? Like, wouldn't you think it was much more likely, hey, remember Abraham, Remember, the, remember Abraham's faith, or remember Moses, or remember Joshua, remember Daniel, like how courageous he was. And the, the person that we're given to mull over in our soul and to chew on and to think about is Lot's wife. Lot was Abraham's nephew. She was living, of course, with Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. This is Genesis 18 and 19. In the text, if we went back and looked at it, Genesis 18 and 19 tells us that God determines I'm going to overthrow, I'm going to destroy those cities because their um, sin is very grave or very serious. So he's going to destroy those cities, but graciously he warns Lot and his family who live there. He tells them what's going to happen. He does that through the mediation of angels. Because Lot is considered a righteous man, God determines to protect him and his family and help them get out of the city before it's destroyed. God sends angels to their home to warn them and lead them out of the city on the morning of the destruction. And the angels give them very specific instructions. They say, um, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And after some haggling about where exactly they can escape to, Lot's family leaves. Lot's wife is at the back of the party. She's kind of bringing up the rear, and as they're fleeing... She looks back. And the text says that she became a pillar of salt. She was destroyed along with the rest of the city. That's who Lot's wife was. Now, why should we be told that we should reflect on her? In this interim time when we live as Citizens of the kingdom doing our best to proclaim and picture, but waiting for the fullness of the kingdom to come. Why this person? How obscure is this? Well, let's think about our hearts for a few minutes. I'll just open up mine to you for a minute. Maybe it'll be helpful for you. I think it'll be helpful for me. I feel like one of my greatest needs, this may be true of you also, that one of my greatest needs is to be reminded that discipleship means conformity. In this time, while we wait for Jesus to return, and it's been a long time, while we're waiting for his return, I'll tell you what's likely to happen for me. I am likely to think and act like I can do whatever I want 
be whoever I want to be, give my heart to whatever I want to give it to, and on the great day of Jesus appearing, hey, no problems for me. I'm, I'm good. And I need to be reminded that when the word comes to me, if I call myself a disciple, when the word of Christ comes to me, there must be no equivocation or rationalizing or excuses. I need to be reminded that the world, as attractive as it is, is not my home that my heart must belong to God and that I have to fight by the power of the Holy Spirit toward those ends. I have to be immediately obedient. I need that reminder to be immediately obedient because if I allow myself the slightest moment to doubt or to rationalize or to listen to counter arguments, I will decide to disobey the law of God and the law of love. And Lot's wife is the prime example of someone who had every advantage over everyone else to be saved, and it was within her grasp. Salvation was everywhere around her, but what was her problem? She was not fully committed to her Savior's. She didn't do what they said to do. She was not obedient. There was something in her that only half followed God. The other half belonged to herself and to the world. That's likely why she looked back. I don't think it was a a morbid, curious look back at, like, the destruction. Like, we might look at a a roadside accident just kind of out of a morbid curiosity to see, like, what's happening there. I don't think that's the reason she looked back. I think it's very likely that it was a longing look back. Not so much like when we look at a, a roadside accident out of morbid curiosity. I'm talking about the look that Ryan Gosling gives Emma Stone at the end of La La Land. They, they look at each other and they lock eyes and there's, a, there's about, what, 30 seconds of this is what my life could have been. This is what I wish my life would have been. It's that kind of a look of, gosh, I'm really sorry to see this go. That's what I could have had. I'm saying it's much closer to that kind of a look than just kind of this what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. The reason I say that is because Jesus' instruction is to not love your life. Whoever desires to preserve his life will lose it. That's why he talks about don't go down to your house and get your goods. Like don't try to save your stuff. That's not... That's not going to preserve your life, that attachment to your stuff or the field, trying to protect your crops or whatever. Let go of that. Don't cling to that. To put a a finer point on it, I realize we've gotten pretty far afield and everyone's thinking about movies now, and that's my fault. But 
We could look at Lot's wife and see in her a forerunner of the half-hearted disciple. That's what we can see in her as a forerunner of a half-hearted disciple who picks and chooses which commands they're going to obey and reserves part of their life for themselves. Right? And so now I feel very condemned because this is exactly what I do. And I'm guessing I might have at least a little bit of, of company in the room. And I think we can all see now why Jesus has told us to remember Lot's wife. Because maybe we've had the wrong picture of discipleship all the way along. Maybe we get baptized when we're 10 or 12 and then whatever. And we call ourselves a disciple, but we never take the path of a disciple. Is that you? I'm afraid that on a lot of days, that's me. And we need to be reminded that discipleship actually means something. It means conformity to Christ, that we become more like him, not that we try to make him more like us. That we actually do obey, that we actually do change. And we struggle with this all the time. Lot's wife fell victim to the same lie that we believe all the time. She believed a lie. Same lie that I believe, same lie that you believe. The lie that the way to find life is to go against what God has said. When in reality, the way to find life and to preserve your life is to follow your Savior, Jesus, in the most minute things. Every true and good path, wherever he leads you to go, whatever he says, do it. If you say you're a disciple, be a disciple. Live by the word of Christ. I think in the end, there's no more helpful person for us to remember than Lot's wife. She is our daily reminder that to follow the word of Christ always leads to life. And to depart from it is always a kind of death. The challenge I need is for someone to remind me how important it is to follow Jesus every day, to find life. Who better to teach us that lesson than Lot's wife? And we get to the end of this, and you're probably feeling like, where's, where's the message of grace? This feels very works-oriented, like, isn't God gracious? I see a lot of grace here in the fact that I wasn't Lot's wife. Because if I had been, it wouldn't have turned out well for me. We have her example. We've been warned in advance. And that's something to give thanks for. Father, we, um, we lift ourselves up to you in humility, knowing the, just the decayed, calcified status of our own hearts in many ways. I just pray on behalf of my brothers and sisters a a prayer of gratitude that 
you have not kept the hard stuff from us, but have given us very specific warnings and directions that lead us in a a Christ-like direction, in a Christ-like path. We also admit that we're so prone to ignore warnings and that we just need a lot of grace in order to receive the warning as hearts with good soil to say, yeah, um, I do need to be a fully committed follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's the title that I'm owning, then um, let's do it. And not only that, but to follow him is good. To really realize that it is life-giving to follow the way that Jesus has said is good and that turning back and turning away always leads to a broken fellowship with you and to this kind of death that just grips us and brings shame and guilt. So as those who live as citizens of the kingdom now, let us live now as we will then. We just ask for your help by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.